How to study the Bible to start 2 Peter 1.19. It says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's very beautiful. So in weeks one and two, we looked at, thanks to Davy, the inductive Bible study, which the three steps again are. Just talked about this. Somebody else? Second? Yes. Nice. Which is another way of saying, what does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean for me? So this morning we're going to consider some of the unique principles you need to know in order to faithfully interpret the Old Testament and the New Testament, often called in papers and sometimes in person. OTNT. So these principles that we're going to look at, are we can see them as kind of like lenses. And they'll serve as interpretational guardrails. you got your Bible, you're trying to understand what it means, it's going all over the place. Interpretational guardrails that will keep you on the right path to the correct interpretation. Uh, if you're interested in a fuller overview, there's other classes through this these core seminars, which are great. But we're at a time right now where Davies teaching through every single book. Um, right now we're doing the Psalms, so we'll come back to it. So this information should be very helpful for the sermons in the past, sermons coming, and you can always go back and listen if you want. We're going to jump right in. The Old Testament, interpreting the Old Testament. So it's been said that interpreting the Old Testament, it's a bit like when you're at Thanksgiving and you're being watched as you're the person carving the turkey. It's kind of like that. Um, it's pretty easy to start. There's nice meaty sections. You're like, okay, this makes sense. But you quickly have to start to make some tricky decisions. And everyone who's watching you has an opinion on what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and uh, it's easy to end up with kind of like a sticky mess with lots of parts left over that no one really knows what to do with. Um, nevertheless, despite the challenges of interpreting the Old Testament, it remains God's word. So in fact, most of our Bible is made up of the Old Testament, so let's walk through these five interpretive lenses. Now they all start with C um, for this lesson. Some of these lenses can and should also be applied when interpreting the New Testament, but these lenses are particularly useful when interpreting the Old Testament. They all start with C. Can you guys guess three? Can you guys guess three of them? three interpretive lenses that might be important when interpreting the Old Testament? Maybe three? Maybe two? Observation. They'll start with C. Observation. Context. Context. Is that you, Caleb? Wait, who's the context? Caleb. I don't know why the credit matters. <laughs> context. What does the Old Testament point toward? Yeah, that's a good one. What's one more you can think of? Uh, covenant. Is that covenant is good. 
We see that a lot throughout. And then this one's tricky, but it's character. Of who? Of God. And then the third one is canon. Yes, that's exactly what it is. There's a pirate part of the Old Testament. So, <laughs> the context. Probably, I don't know. It's probably one of the most important lenses to look through. Um, I don't know, maybe that's just for me because I fail so often to read into the context before I decide what the passage means. But it's the first interpretive lens. It helps you examine and it helps you understand the Old Testament. It's not, it's not that finding the context is like, that's your examination, I found the context and now I'm done. It's like finding the context is what helps you examine what it's actually saying. Um, and then understand what it's actually saying. So we talked about context during the last two weeks, hopefully. And uh, as we talked about in an inductive Bible study, and we'll keep referring to it, it's just, it's the context. So understanding any biblical context, whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, it begins by reading it carefully. Um, understanding the passage, so if we have our passage, I'm going to say this is our passage. Beautiful passage for the day. The first thing to understanding it is to read it carefully in its context. Where does it fit? And most errors of interpreting a text, they come from misunderstanding of the context. Um, you can ask yourself about who the author is, who the audience is, what, what's the date, what's the time period, um, what's the author's intent, which, where with the Bible, that really matters. Um, with pop songs, maybe it doesn't really matter. You can kind of enjoy it for however you want to enjoy it. But with the book of the Bible, no, no, no. Like, the author's intent is very important. And you don't get to just be like, well, I don't really care what Paul meant. I just care what I mean. I just, it's just fun. It's, you know, it matters a lot. Um, what genre are you in? Is it a historical narrative? Is it prophecy? Is it wisdom literature? And a very helpful thing is you look at the verses and chapters before and after the passage you're studying. And thankfully in the men's group, this actually comes up quite a bit. Um, somebody will ask a question about a passage and you'll have three, three or four wise men in the room being like, well, what does it say before and what does it say after? Um, I've come to find that I tend to fail to know what a passage means oftentimes because I don't look at what it says before and I don't look at what it says after, which is pretty much the entire world why they misinterpret the Bible because they don't look at the context of. And it's pretty, like, I, th I think sometimes hearing that you need to look at the context can sound kind of daunting, but it really does start with just looking before and looking after. It's not that complicated. You just look there first. If it's still hard to know, you kind of just keep, <laughs> it goes further and further out. Sometimes it goes to the book before, but at some point you'll start to find a jumping off point unless you're starting from scratch in which you kind of just need to read the whole Bible and familiarize yourself with it. Even if you don't fully understand it, you need to read it and kind of see how the story plays, and then you can start to jump in at parts and figure out the context of certain areas. And you can always ask questions with us here. But So the context is the first lens. Where is it? 
Like all those things we talked about, the author, what's the intent, what's the time period. Um, not, not putting my context onto what it means, but looking at what it means inside of the context of the story. The Bible is a story. Uh, the Bible is not a textbook. It's a story. And even the letters, they're written inside of a story. You know, it's, that'd be the equivalent of like the screw tape letters or the Martian or whatever. And it's an epistolary, if that's the word. It's a, it's a story that's made of letters. Um, it's, it's a little, it's a little um, snapshot of what's going on inside of the story of Acts with that letter. It's a story, it's a story, it's a story. So where am I in the story and what does it mean inside of the story? Yes? Can I use 20 seconds as a testimony? Sure. Grew up in the church, went to Sunday school every morning. I knew a ton of Bible stories, but it probably wasn't until I was in my mid-20s to early 30s that I really began to understand the story of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like that, it's okay. Understand the Bible as a story. Just wanted to affirm that point. Absolutely. The second one, this is a fun one, and I never really paid much attention to this until my Old Testament survey class, and it became super useful. It's just the covenants. Um, so this is a key concept to understand. And so the covenant, the covenants throughout the Bible, they are a progressive unfolding of God's plan. So... The key of the covenant, it's a concept to understand. It is the progressive unfolding of God's plan. He does it through covenants in the Old Testament. Um, theologians like to use a phrase called um, progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. What do you guys think that means? Progressive revelation. A little bit of a time. A little bit of a time. What do you mean by that? Not all together. Not all together. You go. What, what's revelation and how is it progressive? What's what not all together? Revelation. Yes. And what's revelation? It's like you're revealing, you're revealing a part that then feeds into the next part, then feeds into the next part. So you're getting that progressive story instead of for sure. And if theologians are saying it, they're probably talking about the Bible. So it's understanding the Bible little by little the more that you read it. Progressive revelation is what we observe, so the observation part, right, of the inductive Bible study, what we observe as we read the Bible, as we progress through the Bible. Because, again, it's a story. It's not diving into one section to be like, what are the facts of this textbook? I'm good to go. I'm an expert. Here we go. What are you going to say, Henry? Well, they're really revealed progressively, just like anything. If you learn math, you don't learn everything all at once. Exactly. Well, yeah, I would say except this dif the difference is not, it's not progressive with our understanding. It's progressive in how God dealt with them. So mm -hmm. it goes with context because when we're reading it, we're wanting to understand what God is saying at the moment to particular people or, or what, you know, is being revealed through Moses' writings or whatever. We understand that God has revealed his saving, you know, yeah. saving grace or whatever in a certain way to these 
people to his people. Mm -hmm. And later on, um, say like the time of the exile, he, by that time he has revealed his, you know, things such as his working through salvation, yeah. you know, a little bit differently at that point in time. So there's this understanding that's all Sure. Yeah. It's all sort of, it's all pointing to Christ and it's becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. Definitely. So that's by the time Christ comes, you know, it's sort of. Yeah, that's exactly right, and it ties into what I was just saying too about like if you picture those as covenants, there's more than four. Uh, but if you picture those as covenants, it's the unfolding of God's plan. So it's not that when you think of the word progressive revelation, it's not that God slowly got better at revealing to us what happened. It's that he slowly revealed more. It progressed as he revealed more and more and more of who he was and what his plan was. Not that uh, I think sometimes, yeah, sometimes it'd be like, why did he have to do the flood? Was that like a mess up or like what's going on? Like, did he screw up and he's doing better later? It's, it's like, no, he's showing more and more and more through the unfolding of his plan in a story that you need to understand and need to accept as the best possible story of all time. Um, his plan of salvation is revealed, like he was talking about, pro progressively from the beginning. And, uh, Genesis 3 and culminating with Christ so God he reveals this plan he develops a sort he develops the plan he shows us a plan that's sort of like a seed growing into a tree um, he his plan it starts out as a meager seed Eve's seed in fact um, but eventually it blossoms into this beautiful flower of Jesus's life um, Jesus's death and resurrection and along the way we see snapshots of that progression from seed to flower to tree whatever it may be um, in the form of covenants in the Old Testament um, and so a covenant it's important the covenant is a formal agreement between two or more persons usually involving requirements promises and stipulations that had to be kept if the government were to remain a covenant, if it were to remain firm. So again, it's a formal agreement between two or more persons, usually involving requirements, promises, and stipulations that had to be kept if the covenant were to remain firm, usually promises on God's side and usually like things that people need to do on the other side, but different versions. But when we read the Old Testament, we should ask ourselves, so this is about interpreting the Old Testament, not necessarily understanding the covenants perfectly, but something that can help you as you learn the covenants and you learn when you're reading in these sections, um, which covenant am I in as I'm reading? So if this is like a progressive kind of, I won't say checkpoint, just call them covenants, but you've got these check, these, uh, <laughs> I want to say it again, these covenants jumping from here to here to here to here. It's like, which one am I in when I'm reading the story right now? What did God say? What's the relationship between God and man? What are they, what's the covenant they're supposed to be holding right now? And so if somebody sins in back during like the Mosaic covenant, like, is that the same as somebody doing something back in the Noahic? Like, it's different because they didn't, weren't given the law of like written out but they knew consciously. It's just different. Um, but there's a better word that we use today. Probably be contract. Yeah, for sure, covenant or a contract. 
exactly. We have some people kind of uh, disagree on this first one, but there's the Adamic covenant, Adam, um, which is basically work and tend the garden, don't touch the tree, um, they do touch the tree. And then another promise is sort of made right after that a promise to crush the serpent in Genesis 3. Um, there's curses given, he's told to go multiply, subdue the earth. The Noahic Covenant, which is in Genesis 9, it's after the flood, it's like a, a, a reset after massive sin, sort of, and it's a promise to never destroy the earth like the flood. He leaves the rainbow in the sky to be a promise. So he's making a promise. And this one is, that one is followed by um, Noah making a sacrifice. Um, whether God told him to or not, I actually got into a debate with my family recently. <laughs> but he makes a sacrifice and the Lord smells it and it's pleasing to him. And if you look back, actually, at the Adamic covenant, God makes a sacrifice. He kills an animal and then he clothes um, Adam and Eve after the fall. And then in the Abrahamic covenant, we see that in Genesis 12, Genesis 15 and 17. He, a holy nation is called out. A promise of widespread blessing is given by God. And of course, we have things like circumcision. We have things like God telling Abraham to walk blamelessly before him, which you're like, what the heck does that mean? Well, later on, when you look at the Mosaic Covenant, it makes a lot more sense. and It's very written out, very spelled out, which is next. And that's in Exodus 19 through 25. And in the Mosaic Covenant, the law is given. And very simple, blessing is promised for obedience. And judgment is promised for disobedience. It's just very simple. You do what I tell you. It's going back to the garden. It's just broadened. You do what I tell you to do. Great stuff. You don't really, really bad stuff. <laughs> and we see that later, I think, in Deuteronomy 28. Um, the Davidic covenant comes next with David. And that's in 2 Samuel 7. Um, that's a huge jump. So if you're reading the Old Testament and you're like in Exodus, there's not another one for a long time in reading. You get all the way to 2 Samuel 7 and you're like, oh, this covenant thing's come back. Crazy. But this one, it's, it's a huge one. It's that God promises a kingdom in David's line that will last forever. And he says that there will be a king that sits on the throne that lasts forever. And if you're thinking back to when Adam's time, when he promises to crush the serpent, then you're like oh my gosh, I think this is starting to make sense. Like, this this must be the guy, because this Satan character is pretty, he's not a man. I'm assuming there's somebody, but then you end up getting a man anyway, which is amazing. But, and then we have uh, where we are now, which is the new covenant, which is prophesied about in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and then Jesus talks about it in Matthew 26. And in this one, basically, instead of, uh, there's definitely parts for us to do, but it's mostly about, it's mostly about how God made these covenants with man through time, and man failed them over and over. And in this case, God said, I'm going to do it. I'll do the work. I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for you. All you have to do is believe in him and live like him. I will do all of the work. <laughs> you know, it's like he's finally just saying, like, I tried with you guys over and over. You failed again and again. I'm going to send my son. He's going to die. Dude, he definitely gets um, all the credit. So when you're staring at your passage through the lens of the relevant covenant, 
You just need to ask yourself, what are the people doing and what is God doing um, during this period of time? And there's two other patterns that help us understand covenants um, with this concept of progressive revelation. The first pattern we see in the covenants. So so we're looking at covenants and now we're looking inside of a covenant. We're looking at a pattern we see. And that's just creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So inside of a covenant, it's creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. So the events of scripture, they follow this pattern. For example, Adam is created and then he falls, but a promise is made and children are born. The nation of Israel is established, but they sin and are judged. But a new leader comes and resets their affection for God. We see that in Judges over and over and over instead of Judges. But it's, it's within the, uh, the span of each covenant. And that happens over and over, and you have to ask yourself uh, where your passage is according to the progression. So you can be like, where am I? What covenant am I in? Oh, I'm in Exodus 30. That's during the Mosaic Covenant. Now, what part of the progression of that covenant am I in? Has there, is this, there's creating this new covenant? Have they failed to keep it? Is he redempt, bringing redemption for them? Is he creating a new, you know, that can kind of help you figure out the covenant and then figure out where in the progression you are. That's very helpful. A second pattern, which is a little bit more simple in these covenants is looking at who God's people are, looking at where God's place is, and looking um, where they are under God's rule. So God's people being in God's place and under God's rule. And the who and the where and the nature of the rule, they all change as we move from Genesis to Revelation. So as you read through the Old Testament, and you're in like, maybe you're in a certain covenant, you're in Noahic covenant, wherever it may be, you can ask yourself, okay, right now, as I'm reading this, who are God's people? And where is God's special place where he rules? And what are the terms and conditions of his rule? So in the Noahic covenant, I don't think you would necessarily say, oh, it's the Israelites. It's not. It's just people that eventually lead to the Israelites, you know? So you're looking at um, who are God's people. Or if it was later, um, if you're looking at like Sinai or you're looking at like Joshua you're like where is the special place of rule well it's the tabernacle um, it's supposed to eventually lead to the promised land you know like you have to think about these things like and then when you look at a command at that time and you think about how does that apply to me well I need to first think about where's the tabernacle where's God right now in this time where, where is he going to be um, and then, what are the terms and conditions? The mosaic's easy. They're written out for you. Um, you look at Abraham, it's walk blamelessly before me, and then you see examples of him lying and stuff like that. So an example would be Leviticus 19.19. 19. You could turn there if you want. It's a pretty simple verse, though. Leviticus 19.19. 19. It says, You shall not wear a garment of cloth of two kinds of material. <laughs> You shall not wear a garment of cloth of two kinds of material. Um, So I think we could agree we can't necessarily move directly from this text in Leviticus 19.19 and apply it to our lives uh, for the simple reason that we don't live under the Mosaic Covenant um, law concerning apparel. 
Um, this law was given under the Mosaic Covenant and applied to Israel for the purpose of setting them apart as a wholly separate people. We're not under that covenant when it comes to clothes. Um, it's a part of a group of commands in, in Leviticus 19 that conform to God's holiness. If you had to just like throw out, like you're talking about Leviticus 19.19, 19, just do a little exercise right now. How do you think that applies to Christians now? That you shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. When you think about what it means then, and then how could that come? Yeah. Unequally yoked. Unequally yoked. Okay. So Christians shouldn't. Okay. It's kind of kind of like being. Is that kind of like being two-faced? Would you say, or is it more so spending spending your time? here and spending it there and kind of dividing yourself by how you spend your time by your actions what do you think i think yeah in some ways like dividing allegiances so sure a lot of times that text that she brought up gets applied to like marrying an unbeliever but it's much more comprehensive right. like, it's basically yeah well like use like one foot in the kingdom of the world, mm-hmm. another foot in the kingdom of God. And like, it's James, right? Double-minded? Doesn't James talk about the double-minded? Probably. Yeah. yeah it's, it doesn't work. But um, to bring up a point about that is, like, I hear, like, kind of Leviticus used more often by people who don't understand the scriptures who use it as kind of like a, mm-hmm. you take this literally, well, how, well, then why don't you do this? It's like, well... <laughs> literally means I understand it the way the author intended to. Yeah. Therefore, I understand it as this big story. Let me tell you what's going on here. Israel was called by God to be different from all the other nations so that the nations would look on them as a different people in order to look up to God. So when people mm-hmm. look at you, Chris, yes. do they see you, worldly Chris, acting like everyone else, or are they made to look up? to God by the way that you're set apart in your allegiances. And so that's a way to exactly. interpret based on all of those rules that turns that whole idea on its head of taking the Bible literally. I'm yeah. taking the Bible literally by putting it in its grand context. Exactly. With all that stuff. And how are we able to do that? How are we able to do what he just said about being different to the world, looking like Christ? What did God do that enabled us to do that? Yeast. How do we do? How how do we uh, help each other the right way and present ourselves the right way? I heard it whispered. Who's whispering? <laughs> Holy Spirit, right? We're clothed in the Holy Spirit. Can't be clothed in the Holy Spirit and clothed in something else. That's kind of how it applies now. See, see, that's a little bit of a workaround, and it took some work. It took a lot of brains. It took a lot of work in the room. Sure. So one thing, though, and I mean, this is sort of applying what you're, what you're talking about now with context and stuff. When we read something in the Old Testament, we don't have to come up with some way of, of squeezing that into what we what has been revealed to us now. Sure. We don't have to find a, a neat little application the way that that's applied to us. You know. Um, sure. We, we might try too hard to 
squeeze this to material into a cool application now where hmm. that's not really reading it in its context and understanding. You know what I'm saying? Okay, it's yeah. Like, like sometimes, I don't know, sometimes we get too cute with trying to, <laughs> trying to find applications <laughs> from the Old Testament. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. With this specific instance, the author of this lesson, he's just saying that when you look at it that way with the Holy Spirit, Christ has come and perfectly fulfilled the Mosaic Law and inaugurated the New Covenant through his sacrificial death and resurrection. The church, like Israel, is called to be a holy people, even as God is holy. Under the New Covenant, we are marked off as God's chosen people, not by clothes, but by the Holy Spirit. Um, by being pure and blameless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But yeah, we can't just pick out anything and be like, and be cute with it, like, tattoos! <laughs> you can't just start, like, calling stuff out um, just to have fun with it. Uh, and I, I, I've did that a lot. I still do it. Um, so when you interpret an Old Testament task, or an Old Testament text, ask the question, where is this passage within the covenantal biblical storyline? Um, that can help you break it down, especially in the Old Testament. It's very helpful. When you look at the Old Testament as a whole and you try to think of the narrative in your head, it's pretty daunting. It's a lot of stuff. You can, you can break it down by character. That's really helpful. Another way to break it down even further apart is by the covenants. Because they're, and that, it's just super helpful because you're like, Adamic covenant, and then next is the Noahic. What's in between there? Well, there's Seth in there. There's Cain and Abel. Like, you're able to break it apart and see what's in between. Um, and meditating on the whole word is always useful. Third is canon. Not a lot to say about this. It's just, it's an interpretive lens in that uh, it's, a, it's a term used for the collection of the books of the Old Testament and New Testament. How many books are in the Old Testament? Thirty-nine. How many how many books are in the New Testament? Twenty-seven. What does it amount to? Sixty-six. Being cute, the number of man. That's probably the IQ. Yeah. Wait. What? So that would be a bad. Yeah. Very bad. Being cute. Oh yeah. Sure. I don't know. Uh, so it's used for the collection of the whole thing. If you ever, um, if you've ever read from the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, did you notice that the Old Testament is full of itself? It's full of itself. Uh, by that I mean that the later Old Testament writers frequently allude to, or echo, or refer to um, readers. They they refer us back to previous things that happened in the Old Testament. Um, so the Old Testament is full of itself. For example, in the book of Psalms, um, it often refers to events recorded in the Pentateuch, or the, what the Jews call the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In Psalm 95, it says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. What time period was that? What time period was Meribah and the day um, in the wilderness at Massa? Wilderness period. Where were some characters around that time? What was the covenant around that time? Moses. Moses, right, in the Mosaic Covenant. Definitely. The latter portion of the book of Daniel, 9 through 12, is a vision that Daniel received that helps interpret a prophecy given originally in Jeremiah. 
See, they interpret each other and they're full of each other. So when you are reading any Old Testament text, ask yourself, what, if any, connections are made to the rest of the canon, to the rest of the 39 books? One of the keys to making these connections is using a Bible that has a cross-reference system, if you have one. Um, It's always helpful when you're studying a passage to jump to other places. It may not feel that way, because you're like, I just want to focus on this. I don't want to jump around my Bible today. But unfortunately for you, well, fortunately for you, it's all connected beautifully, and you can find and interpret one passage by jumping to other cross-references. Um, When you're interpreting an Old Testament text that is quoted in the New Testament, by all means, follow the New Testament's lead. It's fine. Ask yourself, how does the New Testament author's understanding of this passage impact my interpretation? The, The book of Hebrews is one guide, a huge guide for interpreting the Old Testament. And Jesus helps us understand the point of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. Boom, boom. And Christ, for example, in Mark 7, 19, he declares all previously forbidden food to be clean. And as you make, like, that's just a straight up, like, New Testament, it's just different. Like, it's just different now. Um, And as you make these canonical connections, you'll begin to see what the biblical writers themselves are highlighting. Um, you'll begin to see prophecies and promises given in early portions of the canon that are fulfilled in latter portions of Scripture. And you might, tell, you might say to yourself sometimes, like, why did I do all that work to understand that one thing so that that one sentence somebody said here can be fulfilled? Is it like, ooh, cool. Well, if that's your attitude, I suggest you change your attitude. And you see how incredible it is that thousands and thousands of year ago, years ago, things were made, people did things, people died, whatever it may be, so that later you can see it was all supposed to happen in the first place. It's all part of God's plan. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yes? I have a quick illustration. All right. So last night I was observing Daniel was playing with one of those, probably for the first time, one of those boxes that has the shapes cut up. Um, I feel like the Old Testament in some ways is like the box with all the holes, and then the New Testament is Christ fitting perfectly in all those. So like the sacrificial system, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. The dwelling place of God in the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus comes and he is the dwelling place of God among men. And you can go on and on. Um, and that just dawned on me this morning as you were talking about that. It's like, yeah, it's just like those sticking the, the pegs yeah. in the holes. Like, Jesus is the peg that fits in all the holes. That's great. That's so, yes. It's like that. You know, it makes me think of, uh, we were just on this trip, just watching my family put a puzzle together for five days. <laughs> just... The missing pieces being put there. It's almost like they're, when they're put there, you're like, it's almost like it was there all along and it makes all the sense of the world. Um, It's because it all fits together so beautifully. Um, Fourth is the character of God. So this, this is a little bit more, I mean, it's all, it's all God. Like God sets the context. God makes the covenants that are the unfolding of his plan. He is sovereign over the books that are in the canon. And then we get to look very specifically at him. So when you look at the interpretive lens of the character of God, 
The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. That's already a huge, helpful um, part. The God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God also of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac and Jacob. So therefore, we take special note when reading Old Testament texts that speak of who God is and what God is like. Who God is and what God is like. Um, we can be tempted to rush, just rush really quickly to life application or to be cute. And, but often the right thing to do is just, is just to meditate on what the passage is saying about the Almighty God. It really, sometimes you just need to do that. Um, because the, the intention is that we become like God. And the more that we become like God, the more we are able to live blessed, wonderful, um, great commission. Just li- if we're like Christ, we're like Christ, right? That's the goal. And if I'm thinking about too much about like, who am I? What is this? How do I make it work? Even if I really am, really am truthfully, respectfully thinking about God and thinking about what he's done, but if I'm always thinking about it as a feedback loop of what am I supposed to do, sometimes it's good to just cut yourself out of the equation for a second and just think about who he is. Because he's not a limited person. He's an infinite person. The more that you think about him every day, the more you'll be able to understand how to be like him. And the tiniest intricacies and... Um, they all amount to something that is how you're supposed to live your life. And it just takes time. And when, So we can be re- tempted to just apply, but sometimes we really do need to just meditate. And that's why the Old Testament is so helpful, because the Old Testament has so much room to meditate. Something I hear so often about the Old Testament is how do I apply this to my life? Why am I reading this? Focus on God. Focus on what he did. Don't look at his justice and be like, ew. Look at his justice and be like, yeah. Sin is gross and it deserved it. You know, I deserve it. You know, like, just marvel at who God is. Um, Ask the question, what does this text teach me about the character of God? Um, There's a lot of examples in here. Stuff like Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is beautiful. It's, a, it's simply a, re- a reflection by Moses of God's unchanging character. You ever need to just look at God's character? Remember, Psalm 90. God's character, Psalm 90. God's character, Psalm 90. It says in there, verse 2, God is eternal and everlasting. That's 2 and 4. It says that he is sovereign over life and death as the, might, as the mighty creator. It says he is a God of holy wrath. It says he is a God of mercy, pity, and steadfast love. It says, he is who is gloriously powerful and beautiful. Now, this can be a hard jump to make. And I know we're just talking about interpreting the Bible, but I do want you to walk away with changing who you are as well. It can be a hard jump to make when you're dealing with some annoying thing in your life that seems to have nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever, whether it's a flat tire or an argument or whatever it is. But if you really think about Psalm 90, and you think about who God is, how God is eternal and everlasting, and how he's sovereign over life. Like, when you really start to think about these things about who God is, I'm sorry, like, it always diminishes the, the issue that you're having. Um, if you get to a place where it doesn't, I would suggest a lot of prayer. So that's a really dangerous place to be, and I've seen people be in that place before. It's like, yeah, I get who God is, but I'm still frustrated, and I don't care. That's a very dangerous place to be. 
Um, you do not want to be there. If you look at the people in the Old Testament, that's not where they were. Moses fell on his face. That's who you want to be. You want to fall on your face. But if you look at who God is, oftentimes that can be much more helpful and get you in the right place to even know how to apply in the first place. A lot of times in the Old Testament, God is revealing his character in opposition to something, either in opposition to God, such as, you know, the plagues where, you know, he was showing directly how he was greater than the Egyptian gods, or opposition to the rulers or leaders or, you know, whatever. So it's it's interesting that how sometimes you'll see that, that he is... He is orienting things, setting things up in, in order to show his own greatness, his own power, yeah. his own mercy or something in opposition to something. Yeah. So. And that's a, that's a beautiful uh, taking that further or to a different place. When you're dealing with something that's so difficult, it's, it makes sense to think about something that opposes everything that you're dealing <laughs> that you're dealing because you're dealing with something that's a result of sin or a result of of uh not even wrong thinking maybe just finite thinking like you just can't you can't ugh, like the whatever the issue is it's like trying to fold a bowling ball you can't do it and you're you start thinking about this person who's eternal and everlasting and sovereign and the mighty he's the mighty creator he's he's wrath for things that are garbage he's merciful and pitiful he is pity he said you think about this thing that goes against everything that's causing your problem it's probably going to have a very good not probably it will have a very good effect um, on where you are but also with interpreting the bible with interpreting the old testament the old testament is trying to show you who god is listen very closely and really really munch on it and it's also trying to show you christ is and it's the five the final lens for the old testament um and just like these guys are, if anybody has anything to say, just speak up whenever you want. It's quite a bit of information I'm just going through. But with Christ, the Old Testament is a Christian scripture. Um, when you read about the, old, the apostles quoting all this stuff with all this knowledge, oh yeah, like, oh man, it's almost like Christian ninjutsu, they're so smart. Um, this is all, they're studying the Old Testament and they went through some of the, the gospels and the, some of them in the New Testament. They are very Old Testament people. It is a Christian scripture. It's about Jesus. Um, the Old Testament points to, this is a fun list, it points to, it foretells, it lays the groundwork, it teaches about, it sets up, and it previews Jesus Christ. Um, and when we interpret the Old Testament text, we want to ask questions like, how does this text point forward to Christ? And how is this text when it gets there, where how is it fulfilled by Christ? So let's turn together to Luke 24. If you have your Bibles, Luke 24. Just verses 25 through 27. <clears throat> Luke 24, 25 through 27. Let's do a popcorn reading. Somebody take one verse each. Take it away. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 26. 
was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter and enter into his glory? Wow, twenty-seven. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's skip down to 44. Somebody will take 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Well, that says it. So Jesus teaches here very clearly that he is present and central to the understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, he chastises his followers for not seeing this. Um, So as you read the Old Testament, you have to ask how the passage that you're interpreting predicts, prepares for, points to, reflects, or results from the person and or work of Christ. If you're reading it, maybe you just write the word of Christ on a piece of paper and you start reading the text and you just start writing bubbles all around his name about how this text is talking about him, if it's pointing forward, if there's glimpses, whatever it may be. You're not doing anything wrong by doing that. Except John. It's also Hebrew scripture as well in that it to their Messiah. It is the Hebrew Christ is the Hebrew Messiah. And just, like if we say it's a Christian um, uh, book, may sound discriminating um, to the Hebrews, but it actually is a Hebrew book too. Sure. They would only accept um, their Messiah. Yeah. That God gave them. But it's a Christian book. I'm just saying it's also a Hebrew book as well. Definitely. Jewish book. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for saying that. Reading the Old Testament, um, looking to where Christ fits. Um, If we look at Luke 24, he tells his disciples, like we just read, he tells his disciples on the road to Emmaus that the Old Testament is all about him. The Old Testament is given to us primarily as context for understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So if Jesus does not come and give his life as a ransom for God's people, then the Old Testament is nothing but a bunch of unkept promises. It's unfulfilled prophecies and a history of unimportant, of a very unimportant and very annoying, to be honest, nation. Um, but if, however, Christ is the promised Messiah, the Hebrew Messiah, then studying the Old Testament is essential for those who claim to follow Jesus because it is the Old Testament in which we see glimpses of Christ and where we learn how he has worked for the salvation of his people, not from his birth, miraculous enough, but from the beginning of time the beginning of creation, even further the f- before the foundation of the world. Any questions on the Old Testament so far? Or comments? Someone wants to give this illustration that uh, the Old Testament was like, um, it's like a black and white TV and it would point forward to the, to the Messiah and it was like in the old days, I remember my grandparents Black and white TV, there was an overlay that had like green on the bottom, blue on the top, and stuff. It was like trying to make this black and white color. 
And so it was like in the Old Testament, the glimpses of this Messiah, a little bit of color in it, but when the Messiah came, when Christ came, the Old Testament, we, we, we now have the privilege looking back at the Old Testament and seeing it in full technicolor. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Oh. It comes alive. We, we see God's character, which was revealed and was there for, you know, Old Testament believers and stuff. But yeah. We see it so much, so much clearer. And we appreciate these writings that are given to them. We can appreciate them way more than they could because they yes. have all the facts yet. So yeah. what's, what's our excuse? Our excuse is, I would say, that, again, not that God has gotten better over time. It's just that he's revealed more of who he is. And the more that he reveals who he is, the better things get, in a way, for us, I would say. And, and you know, I would say the Bible, too, it is a Christian book that completes the Hebrew story. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, Said if, they, if the Hebrews would just accept Christ, it's the complete story. Yeah. Of what they've been trying to, what he's been trying to tell them all along. Absolutely. I can't remember where it is in Acts that that word finally pops up, Christian. And I'm pretty sure it's you know Jews calling themselves Christians. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're both saying. All right, New Testament, New Testament in 12 minutes. <laughs> the New Testament. Remember the basic genres. That's number one. Number one, the genres. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this. The genres, three sections. By the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? First four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, They're a historical narrative account of the life of Jesus. The Gospels present Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of God to send a Savior for his people. We also have the epistles, like we talked about, the letters, um, written by the apostles to an immediate audience. That's important. We'll look at that for a second. And then the third one, the touchy one, is uh, apocalyptic. And we see that mainly in the book, and pretty much only in the book of Revelation. Um, So, unless you're one of those people that looks later in Matthew and you're like, that looks pretty apocalyptic. So, in the Revelation, it was meant to offer a vision of the end times to prepare believers to prepare us for that day. So part of what it means to do your best and rightly handling the word of truth is recognizing the genre and letting it shape how you read and how you interpret and apply the passage. And we'll look at other genres and uh, other classes, which will be awesome. So looking at the Gospels, you have to remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Coming right out of the Old Testament, it's the same thing in the New Testament, except it's even, it's technicolor. Um, The New Testament begins with four Gospels, which are all a particular kind of historical narrative. They are not exact biographies of Jesus. I think that's very clear. You finally get that beat over your head when you read the book of John. It's not an exact biography of Jesus. It is not the way that we do things. It's not the scientific, empirical way that we do things. It is different. Um, They are intentionally shaped to highlight the life, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And Sinclair Ferguson reminds us, when you read the Gospels, don't lose sight of Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. 
Um, you might think, how is that possible? But I remember being at a not as good church and hearing people talk about like Bible afterwards and they're talking about what it would be like to be the man who was blind and now he can see. Talking about a lot of the people that got Christ affected and not necessarily looking at who Christ is and the fact that he could do that. Um, Got to shoot forward. They talk about they talk about when he's um, tempted in Luke, the Luke account of him being tempted, and how the Satan's like Bible says this, and he's like it also says this, and he's also and then he defeats him, which is incredible. But a lot of times when people even read that passage, they'll walk away thinking. Um, that the truth of that passage is how to fight temptation like Jesus did. And fighting temptation is a secondary implication of that text. Uh, The main point is that unlike Adam or unlike Israel, as we saw in the Old Testament, um, uh, how Adam was tempted in the garden and Israel proved to be tempted in the wilderness, unlike them, Jesus, the eternal son, who is made of flesh, um, the eternal son of God, after going through the waters of baptism, he was just baptized and he goes into the wilderness. He goes for 40 days and 40 nights and he's tempted and he's hungry and it's terrible. And he proves himself to be faithful. That's the, that's the main focus of that passage. Um, not necessarily immediately, how do I, you know, so you see that immediate, like, this is how I must be like Jesus. It's like, well, let's look at him first, and then let's maybe look at how you can apply it later. Um, that's the truly important part. So that's just an example of keeping, that's, I think that's a really good example of keeping your eyes on Jesus when you're reading the Gospels. Because it can be like, how do I not keep my eyes on Jesus? I'm looking at him all the time. Yeah, but are you looking at him and how it affects you, or are you looking at him for just who he is? It's a big difference. Um, Looking at what Jesus did, looking at what Jesus taught, and looking at who Jesus is. All very important. Thirdly, in the epistles, remember the indicative and imperative form. Do people know what indicative and imperative are? I know we have teachers here. Indicative. What's indicative? What's an indicative imperative form in the Bible? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> You're like like a fro- like a fish. Oh, indicative. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. An imperative is what commanding. It's like so. Here's a fact. So do this. God did this. So do this. Here's the reality of what God did. So you need to do this. <laughs> He's giggling. <laughs> well, 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 it turned out that Jesus was the Son of God. So Judas, unfortunately, this was the result of his betrayal. <laughs> but, well, I guess you could say, you know, I mean, if we're looking at it, that, no, that's a good point. If we're looking at indicative, 
and uh, imperative. Oh man, spell please. I hope that's spelled right. Um, indicative and imperative. Imperative. The reality is, is that nobody told Judas to go, yeah. you know. <laughs> he wasn't commanded to go hang himself. But does illustrate context is still important in the New Testament. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so when you're looking at, this is specifically about, sorry, this is specifically about the epistles. When you're reading the epistles, this is something super helpful to look for, super important, because it happens so often. Um, these epistles, these are letters that represent one side of a two-sided conversation between the apostles who wrote them. That's the one side. And their first audience. So we just went through Philippians. And I honestly had, I had difficulty in teaching Philippians. One of the things I had difficulty with teaching was, when I speak to you about what it says, do I just say that it's like, what he's telling us, and then as time went by, I tried more and more to be like, what he's telling the Philippians is this. So, you know, they're the first audience. That's super important, and it's super important because it jumps back to context. If I just start like, oh, this is, you know, this is fine. This is thousands of, this is a long time ago. Like, it's still, <laughs> the context still matters. Um, so there, it's a representation of one side of a two-way two conversation that the apostles wrote to their first audience. Um, they're not written for us. Um, sorry, the letters, the epistles are written for us, yes, but they're not written to us. Does that make sense? Is that an easy thing to remember? When I look at Romans, when I look at First John, whatever it may be, it's not written to me, but it's definitely written for me. So it's my letter, but it did not come to me first. Um, so you look at it and you ask, what did the passage say to its first recipients? And then, as we just identified, an imperative is like, you need to do that. Whereas an indicative is, God has done this. Because the reality is, is that all facts in life are pretty much there because God allowed them to be there. So it's a fact and an action. God did this, so you do this. Um, so example, if you have been forgiven, indicative, therefore forgive, imperative. You have been made holy through Christ, which is a declaration, but it is also an indicative. Therefore, be holy in your conduct. It's a command. Like the classic thing in, is it Leviticus? The classic thing, be holy, for I am holy. That's just backwards. Imperative, indicative. I'm holy, so you should be. It's really that simple. Um, but you see that a lot in the, a ton of times in the epistles. And sometimes it's not just in a sentence. Sometimes it takes total chapters to get there. Um, they talk about it here. I'd love to give more examples. We just don't have time. But they talk about it here in Ephesians. So in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul expounds the riches of God's grace toward us and Jesus. And that's the indicative. But then in Ephesians 4 through 6, the apostle draws out implications and applies and exhorts his readers to holiness. So sometimes it takes long sections of indicative and then long sections of like, do this, do this, do this. And this is really helpful since Romans is such an important book. Paul's letter to Romans is generally understood as indicative, chapters 1 through 11. Imperative, chapters 12 through 16. So you can be reading through, you can be reading through Romans for a long time and be like, 
this is cool. And then you get to 12, you're like, whoa. So it takes a long time sometimes. But that's the way that you can interpret and you can write it out and you can figure out from abroad, from like standing back. So there's little ones here, but even as a whole, that, that 11 chapters, it's like a constant indicative. And then finally, um, as we apply, so in application, we need to remember what scripture is for. Not remember, um, remember, it's amazing how these things come out. Always being humbled. Remember as if my strawberry frappuccino wasn't humbling enough this morning. Um, in application, remember what scripture is for. Um, in studying the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's profitable for your life and for your doctrine. And we conclude with a reminder that our study of the New Testament should have the aim of obedience. Um, Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples of others, right? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. But he tells them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And God forbid that we would be those who study the New Testament and we gaze into the mirror of God's perfect word only to walk away unchanged and unaffected, right? Like it says in the passage. And we should strive to be doers of the word and not just hearers. So the point of scripture is to do what it says. The point of scripture isn't to take the amazing, beautiful, like succulent truths of the Bible and then be like, how can I warp them into what I want to do? which is, I think, what all of us do here on a weekly basis at some point. We really want to just do what it says. <laughs> do what it says. Um, and so the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're rich treasures of truth, um, but we must read and interpret them correctly. I realize that when you're first starting out, maybe reading through it, or when you're young, just reading through it, it might just be, I just need to get the idea of what's going on. Uh, maybe you need to turn on, <laughs> you say this now, when I was a kid it wasn't a thing. Um, I guess we had CDs and tapes, but maybe I need to turn on a thing so I can just hear what the names sound like because I don't know how to read them and it's driving me nuts, uh, whatever it may be. Um, but as you get older, it's, it's a sanctification, it's a progression, it's getting better, it's understanding it more. Um, and with that comes reading it and interpreting it correctly. Um, not correctly based off of what some man says, but based off of what the Bible says about itself. And we may use these lenses and these principles, the lenses of context, the covenants, what God has sovereignly made canon through whatever and the character of God and who Christ is and how he fulfills, how it points toward what the different genres are, why he allowed those different genres, the gospels, why they aren't exact biographies and why they're narrative stories, the indicative imperative, why he tells us, look at what I did and then do something about it. And then the application, I, it's all here just so I'll do what it says, not so I'll just you know, do whatever I want, all of those things. 
We use these things as we study so that we understand the scriptures correctly, so that we know and understand God's great plan. It's very easy to swing that sword and cut yourself. It's probably more so better illustration is that lightsaber. I always think it'd be cool to be a Jedi, and then I'm like, if I really had that lightsaber, I don't really know how long I would last with that thing. Exactly. Thank you, Jorge. Um, So we need to understand correctly so that what we know and what we understand of God's great plan so that we can know how we can be a part of that plan Um, and therefore honor and praise our good and holy sovereign God. Ezra 7.10, they end it with Ezra 7.10. It says, this great, super simple, Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's a great example. That should be our lives. Let's just be like Ezra. Mm-hmm.